Hello and welcome to another episode of Chemically Speaking, the official podcast of the Royal Australian Chemical Institute. My name is Dr. Matt Griffith, and today we'll be exploring the problem with plastic waste, or more specifically, how Australia's chemists are creating new opportunities through their efforts to solve the problems with plastic waste. As always, we'd love to hear back from you with your thoughts on previous or future episodes. If you have something to say, then head over to our website, www.raci.org.au backslash chemically speaking and get in touch with us. And of course, please jump onto your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to us to make sure you don't miss any insights from our guests. Like today's awesome trio, who will take us through the latest efforts to turn the plastics industry into a sustainable powerhouse of Australia's future economy. You've probably all seen a picture of huge piles of plastic waste on a beach somewhere. Or perhaps you've heard the statistics on plastic waste. How more than 8 million tonnes of it finds its way into our oceans each year, which equates to a single garbage truck every minute. If we don't change our approach, then there will be more weight of plastic than there is weight of fish in the sea by 2050. And yet knowing all of this, we continue to make and use billions of plastic items every single day. In fact, our modern world depends on it. Now we hear big numbers like this a lot in statistics, but I'd like you to take a moment to think about just how big a billion pieces of plastic truly is. For instance, one second of your life passes by oh so quickly, but if I stack one billion seconds together, it would make up more than 30 years. It's a truly massive number. So how do we fix this problem of plastic usage without shutting down our industries and economies? And can't we already recycle and reuse our plastic products? Well, as it turns out, less than 10% of plastic products are recycled in Australia due to a combination of fundamental materials properties, recycling technology that can't handle many types of plastics, and learned behaviours that value convenience over sustainability. It seems clear that we need to revisit the way we make, use, and recycle plastic products. 20th century scientific discovery created plastics to improve our lives. And now we need 21st century scientific innovation to keep them in it. And as you'll find out today, Australia's chemists are leading the way. Our first guest today is Dr. Yvonne Ma, who is the Australia and New Zealand Business Development Manager for Plastic Additives at multinational chemical manufacturer BASF. Yvonne has over two decades of experience at BASF, spanning a range of leadership and commercial development activities in the plastics industry. She is also highly connected in the industrial chemistry community, serving as the most recent past president of the Victorian RACI branch. Yvonne, thank you for joining us today on Chemically Speaking. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Matt. Your bachelor and PhD degrees were both in the area of pure chemistry. Could you tell us a little bit about what attracted you to the chemical sciences in your early years? Well, um, both my parents are from science and technology fields. I recall our breakfasts were lessons in maths. For example, we would cut up toast and learn fractions. <laughs> and also we would visit the hospital where my mum worked and we'd visit quite regularly there. And then at primary school, which was in Singapore, science and maths were individual subjects which we were examined at the end of each year. Okay, so sounds like you had an early passion and were drawn to this area. And then mm. you've gone on and done a PhD and after graduating, you've joined a team at BASF which is one of the world's largest chemical manufacturing companies. 
Now, you've worked in a lot of different roles for BASF, from fundamental chemists through to business development, but they're almost all unified around this theme of plastics. Mm. So what is it about this area that interests you so much? Well, yes, like my peers in BASF, I'm very fortunate to experience this development journey. I was curious about industry after PhD, and so I joined BSF Australia as a graduate applications chemist in the engineering plastics area. There at the technical centres in Australia and Germany, I learned a lot more on engineering plastics. So my first polymer I learned was polyamide 6 and then polyamide 66. And due to the great mentors in my early years at BSF, I just kept sticking with plastics. The big applications in Australia back then were automotive and electronics. So there were big customers we looked after like Holden and Ford, Toyota, Mitsubishi and Bosch. All this made every day more interesting. Most recent I can mention is the new handheld NIR device that we have. It's called Trinomix and this helps to identify types of plastics in very quick time, so in seconds. So you know where and better access on how to place the plastics resource. Sounds fantastic. Now, perhaps we should just take a step back and go back to basics. What types of materials are we actually talking about when we use this term plastic? Yes, so in industry, we use the term plastics more often than, say, polymers, which I discovered when I joined industry after university. The more common term in education and academia we know is polymers. In the whole space of thermoplastics, Polyethylene and polypropylene account for approximately 70%. And then styrenics, which make up high-impact polystyrene, polystyrene, ABS, and then engineering plastics, which is the different types of polyamides and polyesters and then PVCs. Okay. And so we often hear about a problem with plastic waste. Essentially, the theme is that most people think of plastics as having a very poor sustainability reputation. Do you think that that's fair? Well, we know plastics provide health, safety, sustainability and convenience benefits. They contribute to improving living standards, hygiene and nutrition around the world. So have a look around in your space and identify those plastics. But plastics waste has undoubtedly become a problem and we absolutely know it does not belong in our oceans, rivers or anywhere in our environment. Its negative reputation has been created for the way we treat it after use. So if you think about the plastic litter we cause, an example that we can all relate to is the blue-coloured high-grade medical mask. This is made of polypropylene. We've been relying on this product for our safety, and now you see all these masks littered everywhere. Another example is the car. So we reduce greenhouse gas emissions by converting the car made of heavy materials like metal, wood, glass, to plastic. Mm. The plastic makes up at least 70% of the car, and it's very lightweight resulting in lower exhaust gas emissions, so less contribution to greenhouse effects. Now, even better for battery-driven purposes. This also applies to aeroplanes, and this explains why we can have bigger and faster aircrafts. Right, so fantastic examples given there. So it, it seems like the plastic problem actually refers to perhaps particular types of plastics coupled up with the way that we actually use them. So is it possible to make new plastics which don't have these problems and are designed specifically to be compatible with our current or future recycling processes? Plastic waste topic is primarily created from single-use plastics, for example, plastic takeaway containers that come with the plastic cutlery, the plastic soft drink bottle, a cup of coffee, 
after use, this becomes litter in disorganized waste streams. So the important process is really the collection of the waste, is to have the infrastructure that enables the better sorting of the different types of plastic type polymers, the recovery, and then the recycling, which includes mechanical and chemical. Excellent. And so what sort of key changes or new properties would we generally look to be introducing into our plastics to make them more sustainable or more compatible with these recycling processes? We can make them more chemically sustainable. However, the important part is a sustainable process to capture all plastics after use, sort them and then treat them and treat them as a resource back into the circular economy. There are innovative technologies to recycle them mechanically and chemically, and we need to have these technologies in industry. Okay, so these efforts to either manufacture new plastics or to perhaps update our chemical manufacturing processes, are they already taking place? For instance, are there any products or new recycling technologies that people might be surprised to learn are actually made out of plastic? Yes, definitely the plastic products now containing recycled plastics that we see, say the wheelie rubbish bin. I know we just look at it as a rubbish bin, but there's a lot of technical efforts that go into developing the formulation and making sure that it meets all the technical criteria. It's made of uh, recycled polyethylene. Oh, wow. Um, There's even a children's toy range designed and manufactured in Australia made of 100% recycled polyethylene milk bottles. There is also biopolymers that can be used to create compostable packaging. However, it's very important that be used in practical applications like vegetable bags, where they will end up in the right waste stream so that they can be composted and returned as nutrients to the soil. There is also the Clearview Safety Helmet, which I work together with the industry to enhance safety because of its better peripheral vision. This week, everyone would have read and heard about the KitKat wrapper being made out of chemically recycled soft plastic. So this is um, a great breakthrough. That sounds fantastic. And so I'm really getting a strong sense that coupling up this manufacturing of new plastics with recyclable and using them for particular purposes and getting them in the recycling stream that they're designed for is actually one of the critical challenges. Mm. So you've been a leader within the plastics industry for many years now. And in fact, you've recently served two years as the president of the RACI's Victorian branch. So on behalf of the RACI, thank you for your service. What do you think will be the next big challenge for Australia's chemists within this plastics industry? We have clever and innovative chemists. That's what I really appreciate when I look out into our community. Our chemists have the knowledge, the experience and the capabilities to develop innovative solutions, and they have already. For processes that have been established and continue to develop, the big challenge is to have support mainly from government and help position these solutions into industry quickly. Okay, fantastic. Well, Yvonne, on behalf of Chemically Speaking, it's been a pleasure to have you today and all the best in your future with BASF. Thank you, Matt. Our second guest today is Professor Thomas Mashmire, who is the Director of the Laboratory of Advanced Catalysis for Sustainability at the University of Sydney, as well as the founder of multiple companies, which now have a total market value of several hundred million dollars. In 2011, he was elected as the youngest foreign member of the Academia Europea, 
as well as a Fellow of the Australian Academy of Sciences. He has won a number of RACI awards, including the Applied Research Award, Weichart Medal for Economic Contribution, and the R.K. Murphy Medal for Industrial Chemistry. He's also been honoured with some of Australia's most prestigious awards, such as the Eureka Prize for Leadership in Innovation and Science and the Prime Minister's Prize for Innovation, Australia's top prize in this field. Thomas, thank you for speaking with us today on Chemically Speaking. Oh, pleasure to be here. Now, you've made quite a few different discoveries and founded many different companies, all under the banner of the Chemistry of Catalysis. Could you please explain this area of research and what it is that you do? Yes, so catalysis is really the art of making chemical reactions go faster. And I can select which kind of reaction. So if I have 10 reactions occurring at the same time, I may just want to accelerate a single one of those 10 reactions. And that increases my selectivity, not just my overall speed, but I can use it to increase selectivity. So catalysis is all about getting to my products more selectively and more quickly with preferably the lowest possible energy input. That sounds really interesting. So what motivated you to become involved in this particular area of research? Understanding how to influence the outcome of chemical reactions is a really rewarding intellectual exercise. It's just so important. In our bodies, we, are, you know, we have millions, we have trillions of enzymes that do the job for us at every second. And without them, we would die. Uh, so that can be translated into all sorts of biological catalysis, synthetic catalysis, you know, petrochemical applications. The idea is always the same, to try and influence the way in which a chemical reaction occurs, uh, speed it up, and get the excess selectivity. And to do that by drawing up some schemes and some crazy structures on a piece of paper and then seeing that happen in front of one's eyes is extremely rewarding. I'll bet. Sounds almost like manipulating this hidden machinery of life. And so you've worked throughout the world, completing your high school in Germany, a PhD here in Australia, postdoctoral positions in the UK, and then starting your own academic group in the Netherlands before returning back to the University of Sydney. When was it that you first started thinking about applying your research on catalysis to this problem of plastic waste? Yeah, that's a really good question. So already when I was a small child, I used to think there might be you know, a better way of dealing with waste. In, in Germany, they had all these educational videos on TV and you know, during long winter nights explaining how the circular economy sort of works you know, with uh, glass bottles being recycled that came. That was a new thing when I grew up, so I'm that old. And yeah, when I saw one of the big issues in the world to be plastic waste, especially in terms of what it does to our oceans and how carbon extensive it is when you just burn it and what a tremendous waste it is, uh, given that we have taken oil out of the ground and we refine the oil and we make the plastic. So a huge amount of effort and energy has gone into that. To just burn it or dump it didn't sound like a good idea. So I feel that was my call to arms. Excellent. And so I guess you don't start working on a problem if there's already an existing solution. So what is it about our current recycling technologies that makes plastic waste so difficult? Can't we just throw things in the recycling bin and have the problem solved for us? In a sense, we can. So there are different types of recycling. So there is mechanical recycling, which is basically separating out of the waste stream some really high purity components which I can melt down, I can chip up, and I can reuse. So your milk bottles are a good example of that. They are basically recycled plastic. But, you know, there are chips wrappers, plastic wrappers, builders, film, 
all sorts of weird and wonderful bits of plastic uh, that you might have in supermarket, in racks or in meat trays. They are much, much more complicated, especially films people may not realize, but your simple film that covers your meat in the supermarket is a composite of four to six different types of plastic stuck together to do different jobs, protect from UV, protect from oxygen, all sorts of things. And uh, that's very difficult to recycle. So we have got the first technology that can do that. Right. So your challenge sounds almost like developing an entirely new process for recycling mixed plastic products. And you've come up with this new product and you've called it Cat HTR. So what is Cat HTR? How does it work and what makes it different? Yeah, so we are able to take this end-of-life mixed plastic as the only technology that can. All other technologies need higher grades of pre-sorted plastic and basically can't deal with the leftover. So we're not a competition to mechanical recycling. If people pull that out and can recycle it, fantastic. But the vast majority of plastic is still going to be left behind. So we are the only ones who can do that. And the reason we can is because we're using water to partially cut the plastics if it's a heteroplastic, so not just a carbon-based plastic, but there's some oxygen atoms in there, or your nylon with some nitrogens. And um, if it's just a pure hydrocarbon, we go into a mode of supercritical water, uh, that is then radical chemistry, and we unzip the polymer backbone. And uh, that unzipping creates a really unstable situation, but we are capable of then stabilizing that with hydrogens directly from the water. We don't need hydrogen gas. We don't need fancy catalysts to activate the hydrogen gas. We can take the hydrogen from the water. And because of that, the whole economics are very, very favorable. I love it. So we're essentially taking apart these plastic molecules with water and some clever chemistry. So are there any plastic products that HTR can't recycle? Yes, that's a very good question. And it really depends on my reactor vessel. So uh, heteroelements like chlorine, chloride, and nitrogen can give us a little bit of trouble. For the halides, the PVC, chloride can interact negatively with the steel. So all that means is we need to go for either higher-grade steel or steel that has a lining. So that's not an inherent problem. It's just an additional cost. And if we have things like uh, nylon in there, then it depends what I will use my oil product for. Up to 5% of all kinds of hetero we can uh, use without any modification. Fantastic. Now, what sort of products are coming out the other end of this recycling process? We basically come up with four different product streams uh, plus some gas. Um, so the first step is we make some gas, some producer gas, and that gas is actually used to run the boilers to make the hot or supercritical water. So we actually run the factory from the waste itself. The second product is uh, naphtha, which is a light oil fraction that is used to basically make new polymers, especially polyethylene in a refinery. The third stream are industrial waxes, very profitable. Industrial waxes can be quite expensive. So we liberate them, especially from polyethylene as a plastic. And then the uh, large stream is a bitumen additive. A lot of the polymer additives, which uh, people aren't aware of, uh, which are in polymers, end up in that stream. And that's a really good material to add to bitumen, and it actually enhances the properties of the bitumen. And all those four streams I mentioned are commodity uh, streams that can be traded nationally, internationally, and can be incorporated into existing refinery processes. 
Let me just summarize to see if I've got this straight. We're taking plastics, we're breaking them down, these insidious plastic waste products using nothing but water. We're powering the whole plant from that process and out come these high value economic products. Is that a, a fair summary? That's a very fair summary. What an amazing idea. And so I hope the next phase of this is a very successful commercial translation. And Lysella, the company that you've co-founded to translate this CAT HTR technology through to real-world impact, has just made a few very exciting announcements regarding its first factories and new industry partnerships. When can we expect the first CAT HTR factories to start operating? And what are the future plans for this company? Yeah, we are very excited about the CAT HDR process really becoming commercial and going global in the process. So first up, we have a global licensing agreement with a company called Mura and Mura Technology, and they are taking the plastics global. They are just announced the agreement with KBR, the world's largest engineering services company in the petrochemical space. And they have announced that they are going to market this process in 80 countries around the world. And to all of their customers, they're a fully globally present company. And we already have 12 discussions around the world for them building plants with partners. So we hope that really this will go and be the solution for mixed end-of-life plastic. In Australia, we are also moving forward with the plastic side and we're hoping to build a plant in Victoria and that is looking very promising. There's a relationship we have with Nestle and IQ Renew and where we're running a program called Kirby and collecting curbside waste and having a special means by using a plastic bag into which I can put any kind of plastic that can be, then be put into the general trash and the waste recycler can just pick that bag out of the trash. And the beauty of that bag is I know roughly where it comes from, when it was collected, etc. It has a barcode on it. And so one can fine tune and optimize all of these material streams to get the best possible outcome. That sounds super exciting. I love it when Australian innovations like this go truly global. And so you've been a powerful advocate for government rethinking their support for Australian innovations like this to get these ideas to industry pathways going. Do you think that regulation for discovery and innovation is keeping pace with the technology like yours in the plastics industry? Yeah, that's a really good question. So it tends to be that regulation is always lagging because it's very difficult to anticipate the future. But um, it is something which can be a real impediment. So definition of waste is a really big impediment for the recycling industry. And it may sound strange, but if I make my product, which is indistinguishable from the current product, from a waste stream, it is often still classified as waste. And that comes with a whole lot of restrictions. So there are long-term political processes to change the laws, to change the regulation, to help us uh, be more accepting of waste streams as input, to give us virgin products as output and not call them waste. And this can have impact on simple things like how much material can I store on my site? So if I have, you know, let's say, 20 tons uh, license of waste storage on my site, then I take 20 tons of waste and I convert it now to 20 tons of product. I know because the product is still called waste. So my capacity to actually convert the waste is 10 tons for my site. The economics are suddenly halved just because of this waste definition. And that's a really easy thing to, I think, understand and an easy thing, hopefully, to fix in time. Hmm. So let's hope for the best on that front. 
And so what a fantastic success story we've heard about today. As someone who's taken this ideas to industry journey successfully a few times over now, actually, what's the most important piece of advice you would give to younger scientists considering a spin-out or a translation of their latest laboratory innovation? Yeah, so um, I think, first of all, if you have a great idea and you have a burning desire to see that idea be applied, just go for that. If your motivation is to make lots of money out of it, that's probably not the path to do it. So, so it's not really a route to riches, but it's a route to societal impact for good. And if that's your driver, then you will be able to survive the inevitable series of knockdowns and you're going to get up and dust yourself off and push on for another day. So that needs to be a mindset that's there. Uh, making a positive contribution to society through your technology, that's a really important thing that drives people who are successful at the end. And persistence, I think, and a good knowledge base. So really understanding some of the simple principles about these kinds of uh, processes. So if somebody wants to commercialize it, what's their motivation? In terms of an investor, they need to make money, right? Otherwise, it's not going to be useful for them in our economic system. They need to make profit at some stage. So that's not a dirty word. Embrace that concept and see how your technology can make profit for someone. And then that starts to become a powerful narrative. And, you know, one can have a wonderful outcome and very, very satisfying career. How very inspiring. Well, Thomas, it's been a pleasure today to talk to you. So on behalf of all of us here at Chemically Speaking, thank you very much and all the best with Flycella's future. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Our final guest today is Christy O'Neill, who is the environmental scientist at Replast Recycled Plastic Products. Christy has been working in the waste management industry for over 15 years, mostly in roles within the retail sector. Her passion for recycling and sustainability led her to Replast, where she is currently helping this innovative Australian company explore education and innovation opportunities with recycled plastics. So Christy, thank you very much for speaking with us today on Chemically Speaking. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, your university bachelor and honours degrees were in the area of environmental sciences and geosciences. Could you tell us a little bit about what drew you towards these sciences in your formative years? I think leaving school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do as a career. And part of the Bachelor of Science that I was doing introduced you to the range of different core sciences. And I was really drawn to the earth sciences and particularly sustainability. And that's what led me to um, go down the path of pursuing earth sciences and the environmental sciences in particular. Excellent. So a very early passion for sustainability. And today we've heard a little bit about some of the issues already with plastic waste and the efforts to make new materials and more innovative recycling procedures. But we don't often hear about the efforts needed to educate the public and change our behavior. What is it that makes you so determined to tackle this particular challenge? I think a lot of it is just about awareness. So recycling education is quite complicated because there's lots of different rules. A lot of it depends on where you live as to what recycling options are available to you. So I think a lot of it is just around spreading that awareness of where to find that information so we can move away from what we like to call wish cycling. So putting things in the recycle bin, hoping that they get recycled and changing toward knowing what actually should and shouldn't be going into our recycling bins at home and then where we 
can take anything that can't be recycled at home. So that's alternative drop-off sites or transfer stations, things like that. So you currently work for Replast Recycled Plastic Products as their environmental scientist. What is it that Replast are doing to reimagine the way that we interact with plastics and their recycling? Replus has been around for 30 years now. We're about to celebrate our 30th birthday. And thank you. And it really started with a vision of finding a place for those problematic plastics that were ending up in landfill. So things like soft plastics, they identified a need to create products using up those as a different solution. Fantastic. What a great vision. And so where exactly do you get the raw waste materials that make up these new plastic products that Replast is creating? So we have a variety of sources. We get a lot of material through the Red Cycle program. So Red Cycle is a nationwide recycling program that was launched around about 10 years ago. And now nationwide, there's collection bins at the majority of Coles and Woolworths stores. That's where people at home can collect up their soft plastic waste, so whether that's food packaging or plastic bags, and take it to the supermarkets to be recycled. So we also get material from post-industrial sources, businesses in our area. We take a lot of HDPE and PP from them, and we mix them with the soft plastics, which is LDPE, to make over 250 different products. Wow, that's quite a few. So what types of products do Replast make? And do you think that people would be surprised to learn that some of the things you're making are actually made out of plastic? Yeah, so our resultant products are 98% recycled plastic. So we also have a 2% additive, which is UV stabilizer, so they don't fade in the sun, and also color. So it's that extra 2% of color and UV stabilizer. But we make bollards, so lots of councils and schools around the country use our bollards. Uh, We also do a large range of outdoor furniture. We also do a lot of garden products and we have a couple of different ranges of decking. So our decking is particularly good for use in marine environments because it's very resistant to salt. So it gets used a lot in marinas and boardwalks and things at the beach. We also have a range of fencing and we also do traffic control, so things like speed humps and wheel stops. So all sorts of different practical products, 250 of them, using up those problematic plastics. That's fantastic and quite a few structural materials in there, which is perhaps not what we often think about as where plastic shines. And I guess as part of the innovation shift towards a more sustainable plastics industry is retraining the way that we think about plastic use and plastic products. And I understand that Replas have a fantastic exhibit tour that's open to anybody who attends the Replas Environmental Centre. So what would people experience if they came to see you and took this tour? Yes, so we have a Replace Environmental Centre. It's located in Caram Downs in Victoria and we have an education space set up to really tell everybody about why we do what we do. So we talk a lot about the impact that plastic has on our environment and the problems that it creates, particularly in our oceans. And then we talk about current disposal methods. So things like landfill, how that's not the answer for our plastic. It's about 86% of our plastics end up in landfill in Australia. Then we talk about the Red Cycle program and the solution that that offers. And then we talk about what we do here at Replast. It sounds awesome. I understand it's quite an interactive exhibit where you can put your hands on some of these products and learn about them. Do you find that you get much feedback from people on the impact of this exhibit? For instance, are you confident that these efforts are starting to change the way that people use plastic products? 
A lot of the feedback we get from the tours is people have underestimated the impact that plastic use has on our world. And I think they weren't aware of the possible solutions out there. So there's a lot of different recycled products out there. And it's really around the awareness of sustainable procurement of those products for recycling to really work. I see. What are the key things that we should all be thinking about when it comes to our future use of plastics? Plastics is not a naughty word. We obviously we wouldn't have a business without the plastics, but it's all about how we use our plastics and being responsible with that use. About 50% of the plastic production around the world goes into the single-use plastics. So we really need to move away from that throwaway plastic lifestyle and being responsible for what plastic we're using. So that's where it comes down to packaging redesign so things are more easily to be recycled or just reducing plastic use in the first place. Then the plastics that we do use, make sure they have a fit for purpose use, they can be reused where possible, and then as a last resort um, to be recycled and for them to be easy to be recycled. We don't want any plastics ending up in landfill anymore. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you for talking to us today, Christy, and I wish you and Replas all the best in your future journey. Thank you very much for having me. The global effort to control plastic waste is one of the fastest growing environmental causes. And yet, these efforts haven't really been enough to combat the massive amount of plastic waste that still ends up in our seas. But as we've heard from our guests today, there's very good reasons to be positive about plastics, as our nation's chemists herald in an entirely new way of dealing with this major problem. What we've heard described today is that a solution lies in creating a circular economy for plastic products decoupling our high plastic usage from the consumption of new products and designing waste out of the system where possible. The first challenge is to make new plastic materials that are compatible with this circular economy, designed to last longer and be reused multiple times, just like the new innovations that we heard about from Yvonne at BASF. The second challenge is to introduce new recycling technologies that can handle mixed plastic waste and recycle a much higher fraction of our plastic products, just like the exciting new CAT HTR technology described by Thomas. And finally, we need to make new plastic products from recycled waste and educate ourselves on a better way of using plastic products, creating new business models like those that we heard about from Christie and Replas Recycled Plastic Products. And that's all we have on today's episode of Chemically Speaking. Don't forget to subscribe to listen to us on your favourite podcast platform, or better yet, write us a review or jump on our website and get in touch. I'm Dr Matt Griffith, and I'll be back in April with another episode on water management and treatment in Australia. Until then, I hope your days are brightened by a little tweak of chemistry.